This is Gramercy, the podcast that highlights the stories of those who live and work on the margins of society. I'm your host, Corey Malat. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. Welcome to Season 2. This season, the focus is on listening to the voices of our Black friends, neighbors, and strangers in order that we might better learn from their experiences of what it's like being Black in America. My guest today is Chalmer Williams, who joins us from Austin, Texas. Chalmer is living his best life right now. He's a stay-at-home dad who gets to encourage other dads by sharing the challenges, joys, and lessons of parenting in his weekly podcast, Fatherhood Fridays. Our conversation dives into being sensitive about when and how to teach your children about racism. I also learned a lot about code switching that I did not know. We discuss police violence and then end with a fascinating discussion on gumbo versus salad. Chalmer also speaks to the reality of racism against the African-American community with fervent and persuasive conviction. His insights oftentimes left me speechless. He taught me so much in such a short amount of time. Chalmer's voice is one that we would be wise to take heed of. Well, Chalmer, I am so excited to get to visit with you today and to see the world through your eyes. Thank you for joining me. I'm glad to be here. Um, I like to start off with what I consider a more easy question, um, which would be if you were having a dinner party and could fight any three people in the entire world from history to the present, who would you like to choose and why? So, um, as the three people I would choose, and you know, this might sound strange to some, um, I would choose my dad or grandparents on both sides of the family. That would be like one person. Okay. Like, whether it's my dad, because he's not alive, my grandparent, uh, my grandpas, they're not alive. I would, I would want, you know, to invite them to a dinner party. Um, two, Kanye West, and three, Jesus. What are the whys behind all of those choices? Well, the the why is for my grandpa and my dad, you know, they're no longer alive. And, you know, I would just, I would just want to have a conversation with them. Me being a dad now, you know, I I would just want to understand like their thought process. Mm -hmm. Because I never had those conversations with my grandpa or granddad or, or, or dad, because my dad died when I was 16. I'm so sorry. I never, yeah. So I, I never had a chance to have those conversations of fatherhood or just, you know, their thought press of why they did things a certain way or, or, or why, you know, they, um, my grandparents were never married. You know, I, I never, I never knew. So, yeah. you know, to be at a conversation with them to kind of pick their brain, not in a sense of judging or, or bitterness, but just wanting to understand, mm-hmm. you know, um, because a lot of times I kind of feel like with my family, I'm a fish uh, going against the current, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? That's been set before me. So mm-hmm. um, that, that would be the why for, for my, you know, lineage of, of men. Um, Kanye West. I've always just been a fan of his music since the time he arrived. I know he's a weird and and misunderstood person, but for some reason, I'm just attracted to it. He says stuff off the cuff. Um, He talks in theories and concepts, but he just seems interesting. Uh And I would just love, you know, hypothetically if he was not just not just at a dinner with me but if he was on my podcast just to kind of understand and decode more of who he is mm-hmm. as a person he certainly is kinda, an influencer isn't he yeah because i kind of feel like he's the quincy jones of our time you know oh, what i mean yeah um you know that's what i would say and i mean there's a plethora of other things that he's involved in but I think it would just be cool to just be next to somebody like that 
and just kind of see without the media like who they really are mm-hmm. behind the music yeah for sure and jesus and my, is self-explanatory right yep, <laughs> who doesn't want jesus at their party yeah I, you know i mean we we model as christians we're supposed to model after him and so you know i would just want him to be there you know so so i can see like what i'm doing right with my life what i'm doing wrong maybe he could turn some water into wine and yeah and, you know things of that nature so well back to your grandparents and your dad um i can totally understand why you want more of that time with them because you want to see what parts of yourself that you get from them and what parts your children have picked up from them and just to better understand yourself, right? It helps to know your history. So what a loss. I'm very sorry for that loss because not only is it a loss of relationship and say, hey, dad, look at my kids and my family and my wife, but I see you in my son or I saw you in how I responded to somebody today. And that is something that you don't realize to be thankful for until you don't have it anymore, huh? Yeah, and I mean, you know, a lot of times when people have those references or reflections, they're they're more secure in in who they are, you know, whether it's a father, whether it's a, a man, a woman, you know, mother, when they can reflect on those, you know, uh, this is what something your grandpa would do. This is something mm-hmm. your grandma would do. This is something your dad would do. They're more, they're more secure in their their identity or their role. So true. That's a very important point. Speaking of your dad, I'm interested to hear how you were raised, what it was like growing up being Chalmer, and what were the fun, positive, wonderful memories you have, and what were some of the things that are more traumatic and that were that took kind of a lot of years to to work through yeah yeah so you know for me and 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 i'm going to drop a bombshell on you that you probably didn't know about me you're in fort collins colorado correct yes sir so i was actually born and raised in denver colorado seriously i'm dead serious like but you're in austin now austin texas yeah wow yeah, so I'm I'm from the 303 uh-huh. zip code. Yeah, um, you know, familiar with I-70 and 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 you know how to get to Fort Collins from mm-hmm. I-25 and. Well, oh, cool. Know, yeah, Colorado State. And yeah, yeah I'm, I'm I'm more familiar than you think. I just I wanted to save that for the. <laughs> well, thank you for that connection. I I enjoy that. Yeah, so we can talk about. And I'm very familiar with Austin. I used to live in Dallas, so we went to Austin very frequently. And so I can picture all the things you're talking about, and you can probably picture all the things I'm talking yeah, Dem- about. Yeah, Denver and Austin are very similar cities, so it wasn't a huge transition mm-hmm. coming from Denver and living in Austin. You know, Austin's like. Like Denver's little brother, you know. So that's a it, good way to put it. Yeah. So it, it it wasn't a tough transition for me um, at all. But yeah, I'm a, I'm originally from uh, Denver, Colorado. And you were born in Denver. Yeah. How many siblings do you have? I have one sister and two brothers. Okay. And are they all still local, or have, is the family kind of spread? The, the yeah. the family is kind of spread at this point. The only one that's still in Colorado is my sister. Um, I have a brother that lives in California and another brother that lives in El Paso, Texas. And okay. my mom just relocated to Texas too. And so she's uh, in Fort Worth, which is just a couple hours from Austin. That's not a horrible drive. That's good to have grandma close by, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Good. Um, so... Was Denver a positive place for you to grow up? Do you have positive memories or were you, um, what was that like for you? So Denver, you know, it's kind of an oxymoron because when you hear the word Denver, um, a lot of times people think, you know, the mountains and, and skiing and, you know, just the outdoorsy place. And it does provide that. Um, but the, the era that the, the place that I grew up in, it wasn't, people weren't talking about that. So I grew up in Denver outside of a little bit outside of the city, this place called Montbello. And I don't know if you've heard of it or not, Mm -hmm. but, um, Montbello is 
was a place that was pr primarily African-American and Hispanic. Um, it was a working class uh, city. But being that Denver is so sedity, a lot of times uh, Montbello got a bad rap. People called it the hood, Montghetto. Oh, no. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and so, you know, for me, my childhood, you know, I had a lot of good memories. I had a lot of fun times. But, you know, when things got bad, they got they got really bad. You know mm. what I mean? Um my 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 parents were both together, um, you know, very involved. My mom was like a community mom. She worked at the middle school um, as a secretary. And my dad worked uh, at a, a bakery manufacturing. So we were just a working class mm -hmm. family. You know what I mean? We we ate dinner together. We we went on vacations. We different different things. And so, you know, if you put that setting and put us in a middle class, mm -hmm. it would just look like we're thriving. But when we mm -hmm. were in Montbello, it just looked rough because of some of the things that were happening inside the community, like gang culture, um, like uh, people selling drugs, people on Section 8, uh, drug addicts, you know, just all these things that are outside mm -hmm. of your home. Mm -hmm. So you're trying to keep this this home of balance of love and secure, mm -hmm. but during that time of you know the late '80s and the '90s, really when I grew up, um, these are the things that when I step outside the door, I would see or hear about from time to time. That really is so unfortunate. Like you just mentioned, had you taken your family and dropped you in any other suburb. Nobody would think twice, but you had a much higher mountain to climb living in that particular area. Yeah. And, you know, I've driven through and spent time in and known people who lived in um, very economically depressed areas. I've worked in economically depressed areas. And it's, it's something that's oppressive about that area that almost has a hold on everybody. Would you agree with that assessment? Uh, yeah, be, because, you know, you're, you're marginalized yes. um, by, by your own skin color, by your own resources. But as a kid, you don't know it yet. It hasn't impacted you. You're just a kid, you know, uh -huh. playing basketball, playing football, playing hide and go seek in your backyard. But you don't know it yet. But it becomes more apparent when you just want to go to the park and play basketball and yes. you're running from bullets because they're shooting at the park. You know, it becomes more apparent when, you know, you're just hanging with your friends, you're walking a friend home, you're hanging at the park, and you get robbed at gunpoint. That's horrible. So, so, so the, you know, this is when your eyes begin to open and realize, like, man, um, I am in an oppressive situation, mm -hmm. um, and – you know, th those are where some of the the hardships and and life lessons uh, of how it shaped who I am today. What did that reality feel like? And, and do you remember that, like, you kind of briefly touched on it when you realized, man, I am marginalized. People don't like me because of something, whether it's where I live or my skin color or um, my family. like. When did that realization hit you? Like, I'm not living in a safe neighborhood like other people. Well, here's the thing. I didn't deal with racism directly. When you are in an area where it's predominantly Black and Hispanic, it's not so much racism as it is classism. Yes. Yes, I'm right. glad you and spoke classism, to that. And classism is like racism's cousin, mm -hmm. but it's mm -hmm. more quieter. Mm -hmm. So you don't. Sometimes you don't pick up on it that you're in a situation that is, you know, economically disadvantaged, lack of resources, lack of access, because everybody's like you. Yes. When you see your neighbor, they're black. When you see a neighbor that's Hispanic, you might see an occasional white neighbor, but you don't really know that you're in this situation. I didn't realize that I was in 
a situation like that till my senior year in high school. Really? When I transferred from my neighborhood school, Montbello High, and went to East High School, which is like in the heart of Denver off uh -huh. of uh, Colfax. So then that's when it became more apparent that people don't like me because of the color of my skin. People have negative comments because of the area that I come from because you know, you're in school and then you tell people where you're from and it's like, oh, you're all the way out there. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, they say indirect things mm -hmm. uh, uh, about your race unconsciously. And so, then, you know, when, 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 I, when I was a student, a senior at East High School, these were the first experiences of, you know, understanding about how people see my community because I didn't see it like that. Mm -hmm. for a long time mm -hmm. but when I stepped outside of my community I realized like wow people really think my neighborhood is the hood people really mm. think my, my neighborhood is the ghetto and me being more well-rounded and more level-headed and, and, and have had other experiences outside of Denver and outside of Montbello I realized that Montbello's not the hood it's not a project like mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Denver sits on a high pedestal yes. of, of what they perceive as hood that if, if it doesn't, if it doesn't get to that level or that par, then everything else is just, Oh, this is rough. This is, yes. but I've everything been to some places is... where it's just like, okay, this makes Montbello look like a playground. Uh-huh. Everything else is just less than it right. doesn't matter. It's, you're right, it's more classism. That is a really excellent point of view. And to that point, it reminds me a little bit of what Trevor Noah was saying in his book. I don't know if you read his book, but he grew up in Johannesburg. And he said, even in Johannesburg, there were different levels of boroughs that went from the nice level of hood to the worst level. And even then, even within the hood, there were there was classism. Like there's people better, you know, you look down on other people less than you. Do you think that's true in your experience as well? Oh, oh, oh yeah. I mean, because, you know, people in my neighborhood, you know, and this is looking back, not in the moment, would have thought I had the perfect life mm -hmm. because I had two parents in the home. Yes. Because my parents had a mortgage and a lot of other parents were renting. My parents weren't on drugs. My both my parents kept steady jobs. Mm -hmm. We had, you know, uh, home cooked meals. You mm -hmm. know, so those little things that we take for granted, you can go to your neighbor's house or another friend around the corner, and their parents are not even home. Exactly, their siblings are raising themselves. That one of their parents are on drugs, so you see them walking up and down the street, just zoned out. So they're looking at you, comparing and like you got it, you got it better than me. Mm -hmm. Which even which which even just kind of opens up more of the idea of oppression. Yes, and the, and the idea of of being marginalized. Yes, it does, doesn't it? I'm so glad you brought that up. So. Did you end up going to college in um, Colorado, or is that when you got to Texas? No, so I met I met my I met my wife in Austin uh, through a mutual friend. This is probably in my late twenties. Uh huh. So so we met in Austin, and then we end up relocating out here because this is where I met. Oh, okay, cool. But I went to college at a historically black college and university. I went to Tuskegee University. Oh, awesome. I've always wanted to visit that place. My yeah, goodness. So that's, that's where I went to college. And, Lucky you, know, you. you know, they took a chance on me. And, you know, I ended up graduating. And for me, that's when my narrow view of what I thought life was about and it began to broaden because now I'm dealing with my own people, but now I'm seeing black doctors, black lawyers. Mm -hmm. I'm seeing what the black middle class look like, what the black upper middle class mm -hmm. look like, what, 
African Americans that could be snobs. Like being in being in an HBCU, even though it's your own people, you're seeing a broader spectrum of your own people. So when 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 people, you know, you fast forward to 2008 and Barack Obama is elected and people are just raving on how eloquent he speaks. Mm -hmm. For me, that was nothing new because I, I knew people on campus that spoke yeah. like that all the time. Yeah. So it was nothing new for, you know, people to speak eloquent and, and, and have a vernacular that is so broadened because I saw that on campus. Yeah, I also saw people like myself uh -huh. that are, are, are just trying to figure it out. Like I, I met black people that were from Utah I met black people that were from <laughs> Oregon and yeah. Iowa. We're yeah. all looking like there's black people where you live. Yeah, there's <laughs> black people where I live. Yeah, so it's you know what I mean. My my scope of understanding of the world began to broaden. And that's the beauty of college, isn't it? That really, mm -hmm. truly is. And I just love that you speak to that because you know that's just a, a human condition. It doesn't have to be based on the color of your skin. I think that's also something we can all relate to, that going off to university really does expand your point of view. You meet people from all walks of life, and you're kind of like positioning yourself like, where do I fit in here? You know, it's kind of an oddity. To your point of Barack Obama, it's, it actually saddens me that people are surprised when an African-American speaks well one person doesn't represent the entire race and that's why when a lot of times uh people of non-color do something wrong and then they go to uh, uh an activist or or somebody that is representing us they think it makes it better and it's like he doesn't represent us mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. just like obama doesn't represent the entire african-american it's so exactly much broader and there's so many more subtle nuances to the african-american culture the two different extremes that you look at it's yes. either uh president obama or it's little wayne and it's like no those exactly. are two different extremes two different people two different people of thought and so we have to close that gap and look at it from from the nuances of what you see in the middle because everybody is unique and everybody has a different story and you can't you can't lump us all together amen i love it i love it that's exactly <laughs> why i'm doing this chalmer that's exactly why because for too long i think black people have had the burden of speaking for the entire race and i do not think that's fair because not once does one white person have that burden. I don't, I think that's been purposely set up that way by our media, by just the racism roots of our country in general. Would you say that's true? Absolutely, I would say that's true. It's because, and part of it is because, you know, subconsciously you want to keep African Americans inferior. You want us to keep us inferior, you want us to keep us. Um, looking intimidating to others. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it continues to happen so that there can be some kind of mystery to us that mm -hmm. makes us less than human. Yes, it feeds that narrative of, of fear, right? Fear of the other. And we need to stop that, just stop that in its tracks, break that myth open and just say that is so not true that's an actual lie so start getting to know people who are different from you and then you'll understand motives you'll understand their heart you'll understand their story and you'll see what you've been listening to or what you've believed is not in fact true yeah, yeah. so you said that when you didn't really have to deal with racism growing up so did your parents ever sit down and talk to you about it or just like you know, prepare you? My parents didn't uh, talk to me or prepare me directly. You, you have to remember that 20, 25 years ago, sure, there's racism that exists, but at that time, you know, African-Americans, the middle class was growing, 
you are seeing a lot more positive images on TV of, of black representation. And so even though there was a lot of bad going on in our communities, there was a lot of good. And so my parents, for them coming from the 60s and 70s and, you know, having the childhood that they had, mm-hmm. they probably thought we had it better. Oh, yeah, for sure. So, so they didn't they didn't do it directly we would like watch and i must i'm sounding my age when i say this we would watch like blockbuster movies and then we would kind of talk about it like this is racism or my dad would watch something and he couldn't handle the movie and he was like i can't watch it i just wow. because it's making me feel a certain type of way um that 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 uh, that raw emotion is making you feel a certain type of way about a white person or a group of white people that you don't want to feel uh, you know something as simple as mississippi burning awful. You, you remember you remember that movie yes i do movies like that 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 that, that came out in the 90s color purple that's the 80s mm-hmm. but for my dad he couldn't sometimes he couldn't watch the whole movie because you, you end up being fueled with a rage and an anger because of how we we were treated Yes. And so that's indirectly. So you you're seeing something as a kid, uh-huh. but he's not saying this is racism, but you're seeing how this movie that we're renting is making him feel or my mom going to work and struggling to get a promotion mm-hmm. and then another white woman comes in and gets the gets the promotion mm-hmm. because of her uh, accolades or her going to this prestigious college versus my mom going to community college. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So you, 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 you know, it's something there, but they're not articulating or, or preparing me for it. Um, so you felt again, it, I'm, you huh? felt it, you felt what they were feeling, but you didn't have work. You couldn't put a name to that feeling. You couldn't put a name to it. You knew what, you know, as you got older, you knew what racism was. You know what I mean? But again, the racism that you were seeing or learning about was so dated compared to what your reality is. So you thought that was just back then. That's not now. Right. That's not my reality because what you're seeing is, okay, a, a, a white man and a black man don't like each other. They're living on opposite sides of the track. There's there's brutality going on. There's the community raging. But you're also seeing in this movie or reading in this book how this black family stuck together and became a tight knit and created their own. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't my reality in the 90s. I was seeing, you know, gangs and people killing each other and and people's houses getting broken into and and shooting. So it's all of this going on. Mm. And I don't think my parents, I don't think my parents equipped me enough to, to be ready for racism on, on a grand scale, because Mm -hmm. a lot of my, you know, a lot of my experiences was just happening within my own race. Wow. So your dad never shared any of his experiences with you? No, and he was about as light as you are. Really? Yeah, he might have told me a story here and there, but it wasn't like let me explain. It's different. It's different when you tell a story mm-hmm. and then you explaining the narrative behind it. Mm-hmm. I never mm-hmm. was explained the narrative behind it. I was just told a story of man, this happened to me when I was blah, 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 blah. And I end up having to do da, 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 da. Yeah. And it would just be the end. <laughs> you know what I mean? Based on your experience growing up, how have you and your wife chosen to discuss this with your children? Are you a lot more forthcoming? Are you just waiting? I'm, I'm interested. I'm genuinely interested in what you feel is striking a healthy balance. Well, my kids are really young, and, and, and what I mean really young, right now they're just seven and five, okay? Mm-hmm. And so me and my wife are both forthcoming because we both 
um, had the opportunity to go to HBCU. So she went to Southern, I went to Tuskegee, and then she later on um, received her master's at UT. And so, you know, we are both more forthcoming and both more aware of what's going on, especially within these last 15 years of, of, of what's been happening in our climate. But at the same time, you have to be more cognizant of your kid's personality. Yes. Because sure, you can, you can bring the hammer down and you can open them up to this world, but are they mature enough to handle it? Mm-hmm. You don't right? want to scar them. You don't want to scar them. You don't want them to go to school with hatred in their heart. Um, exactly. I've seen that too. Or because, an inferiority complex. Or an inferiority complex. So you, you, you have to know your children. And um, I just now had the conversation with my son about Martin Luther King. Really? Is he the older one? Is he seven? Yeah, he's the okay. oldest. So okay. he's seven. And I just now, like, literally just this past week Mm -hmm. had the first conversation about martin luther king his struggle his plight for um equal rights equal opportunity uh you know the things but funny thing is he was already introduced to martin luther king in kindergarten awesome and so he's kind of looking at me like oh dad i already know this mom already knows this (laughs) and so i'm i'm looking at him i'm like okay this might be, I'm looking at my wife and I'm like, this might be a good opportunity to introduce slowly the other side of Martin Luther King that they're not telling you about. Uh huh. And so as we began to watch videos online and hear his speeches and look at cartoons to understand the depth of what he was dealing with, he began to get scared. Really? Yes. He began to get scared and was like, I I can't handle anymore. Mm. I'm glad you're such a sensitive father to that. It made him him cry. But I was already prepared for it. As a dad, I was already prepared for it. Why? Because I know know his personality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I know his personality. And he couldn't. He couldn't handle the fact that somebody would kill somebody for standing up to do the right thing. He was thinking in his mind, this might happen to me. Think about how profound that is for a Mm seven-year-old to think that this might happen to me. Mm -hmm. That's a a huge weight to carry. Right. But that also shows the depth of how much my son or even my daughter cares about mankind Mm -hmm. because they're crying over Martin Luther King Mm -hmm. getting killed and he Mm -hmm. was killed in 1968. Yeah. And that just lets me know, even though, you know, we have to be there, me and my wife have to be there to help him get through, you know, his fear, but it just lets me know the depth of where his heart is subconsciously because me and my wife had a conversation later that night and we were saying when we were his age, seven, eight, nine years old, and we were introduced to Martin Luther King, we didn't have those same feelings. It was just like, get the assignment done. Really? Yeah. Wow. We weren't crying and, and, and fearful of our life. It was just like, okay, get the assignment done. Learn, learn as we go. So you didn't take it as personally as your son did? No. Yeah. Yeah. No, me or my wife. And we said that as kids, we we weren't where he is Uh or even his sister of taking it personal. It was just like Martin Luther King, he's a figure, you know, and let's kind of complete this assignment in class and move Mm. on because neither of our parents were as forthcoming Mm -hmm. about the severity of who this this man is i was just gonna say that is a testament to your parenthood i think that you are that in tune with your children that you wanted to frame it in a way that was educational but also touching his heart and i think that's just beautiful i'm i'm so impressed with the way you guys chose to do that it's really <laughs> I appreciate cool it. 
That's really cool. Maybe I'll do an episode on, on Fatherhood Fridays around what we're talking about. Yeah, that's definitely something. I think a lot of parents might feel like they're alone in. They don't know how to handle it. And, and there's not one right way. Like I know there's not one right way. Like you were saying, you have to be careful of your child's personality, right? So how close do you do you dance around it? Are you blunt? Do you, there's so many different angles you could come at it that um, that would be really interesting to see how many parents have discussed this and what outcomes they've had and what method and style they used. Um, so when was the first time that you noticeably, you said, hey, that was just racist, that thing that person did to me. When was the first time you experienced it for yourself? So the first time was about 17, 18 years old. And I know that sounds like late coming to the table, but it's again, it's not until you get outside of your comfort zone and you have to interact with people that don't look like you, don't sound like you, that you start experiencing racism. And so I remember uh, two things and I'll bring up one. So I, at 17, I was trying to find this part-time job and a friend of mine told me that this calling center was hiring. And so, you know, went down, filled out the application, went through the interview process, you know, they asked me background. And so they wanted me to take a, uh, a customer service uh, recorded test, right? Mm -hmm. Like we want you to say these three lines, mm -hmm. okay? So I say the three lines and they're like, okay, your voice sounds too deep. I need you to sound like this. So I'm like, okay. So then I tried to mimic what this guy is sounding like and this lady sounding like, but I can't do it mm -hmm. because th that's their voice and this is my voice. So then after the third take, they were like, okay, we need you to more phonetically pronounce these words. And I'm like, okay. And so I probably went through like 20 takes before it hit me like I'm experiencing racism uh -huh. because yeah. of the way my voice sounds over the phone. Yeah, don't be the, you, be us. <laughs> right, be us. And as African-Americans, we actually have to do that all the time. Really? We act, it's called code switching. We have to sound a certain way in front of uh, uh, constituents and associates that we would sound differently in front of our family and close ones and friends. Really? I did because not know that's what code switch meant. Code switching is, you, you do it all the time. African-Americans do it all the time. It's, it's almost like it's innate in us to learn this in order to survive the world. So like you yourself, me and you could go in for the same job and you're literally being 100% of yourself. Mm -hmm. Me, I have to tone down myself mm -hmm. and be more proper, be more, which is nothing wrong with. And so a, a lot of times, we as African-Americans, we have to cold switch in order to survive and thrive in the real world. Thank you for educating me about that. I did not know that's what that word meant. Yeah, yeah. cold switch. And they talk about it all the time. In There's even a podcast called Code Switch. <laughs> I didn't yeah. know that's what it was about. Yeah, for, for us in the African-American community, that's what it means to us. And we do it more often than none and we end up losing a sense of our 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 culture a sense mm -hmm. of who we are in order to assimilate into the masses well i don't think assimilation is is a good thing i think assimilation is a place to hide um, I used to teach um, english to adult immigrants and refugees and they always felt forced to become just like Americans, to leave their culture, leave their ways, leave their uh, language behind and become just like us and then they'll be accepted to which I'm sure you can relate to yeah. with white people. But then um, I told them, no, there's another way. You can integrate, you can take the good things 
that you like about this culture and combine it with your culture. And then you become a part of by integration, not assimilation. One is healthy and one is extremely unhealthy because you lose your sense of self. You lose your sense of history. You lose your sense of worth. I think assimilation is very dangerous. I think assimilation is very dangerous. And I would even add to your up you one and say that I wouldn't even integrate because integrate is, is so similar to a simulation. What you have to look at yourself as a salad versus gumbo. And I'm gonna and I'm and I'm gonna break that down. Okay, do in, it. In, I like it. I, I like this analogy. Okay. okay, when you have gumbo, you have all these different ingredients, right? You have sausage, you have chicken, you have okra, you have the roux, you have rice, and you know, whatever else you want to add in it. Uh-huh. But once you taste it, it just tastes like gumbo. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes. Versus versus a salad, you have all these individual things. But when you taste it, you can still taste a tomato. You can still taste a cucumber. You can still taste the cheese. You can still taste the olive. It doesn't necessarily get clumped into one mm-hmm. integrated thing. You're still tasting the separateness of it. So what I would say is, is that you can be an individual and still be inclusive. Yes. Like, a, like in salad. Yes, I appreciate but, your point of view. That is just a fantastic visual that I'm going to carry with me. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, but it's hard because in order to be an individual, it's hard to be an individual, especially in the workplace or just day to day, because the, you're, you're asking for something from them. You're asking mm-hmm. for a job, but they look nothing like you. So what do you do? Do you uh be an individual in efforts that you're thinking in the back of my mind they're not going to hire me because of what i bring to the table as an individual or do i have to cold switch and water it down Mm. in order to get the job and then end up being myself once i'm on the job Mm -hmm. my personality my my uh culture my history those Mm -hmm. are the those are the dualities that people of color not just blacks but people of color deal with all the time mm-hmm. and that's why i gave you uh you know a little bit of figurative language around at the end of the day you just have to be a salad and and figure out how you're going to coexist and be inclusive in whatever world that is whether it's the workforce whether it's your neighborhood whatever world that exists um instead of just being gumbo because you lose the sense of the taste or the flavor that you bring. That is genius, Chalmer. Thank you. I, I appreciate that point of view. I see the duality plain as day now. And um, I'm glad you spoke to that. That is, man, I have so much to sit and meditate on after we talk here. This is fantastic. <laughs> I appreciate you. Um, I sure hope you've not experienced anything negative like this. I'm, but have you, h- how are your thoughts? What are your thoughts? on police have you had positive experiences negative experiences do you fear them for a long time i used to fear the police really um and it really kind of started around my teenage years looking at you know seeing my neighborhood seeing how the police were handling some people that i knew in the neighborhood some people that died behind uh police killings um, me getting pulled over and, and getting tickets um, for speeding or, you know, <laughs> when you get pulled over for a long time, I used to get pulled over and it would be one cop behind me and then a second cop would come. So a lot of, a lot of us as African-Americans know anytime that second police comes, you're not about to just walk away with a ticket. Mm. Just heart-sinking feeling, huh? Right. Heart-sinking feeling, and that's what creates the fear. There, there's, been a, there's been two particular incidents I remember where I've been manhandled by the police, thrown on the car, right? Did mm. an all-search warrant inside my car. Couldn't find anything. 
couldn't find anything. But because of some mistakes that I made as a teenager, it uh, haunted me for years. Mm. Um, because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm from the era of when Fast and the Furious, the movie, first came out. I'm, I'm street racing. I'm, I'm doing these things I'm not supposed to do. And, you know, to no fault of my own, my license ended up getting suspended. Mm-hmm. And I found myself still driving at, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21. And so, you know, when it, when it, uh, police take your ID or your license and they look at all this thing, then you pose even a greater threat or mm-hmm. a greater uh, suspicion. Mm-hmm. Even if you have a seatbelt on, you're not speeding. Oh, I have to, oh, well, we see here, da 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 da. So, mm-hmm. you know, but there's still no reason for me to uh, have an all search warrant to try to mm-hmm. find drugs in, mm-hmm. in, in my car while I'm driving down I 70 East to go pick up my brother from college in mm-hmm. Missouri. Mm-hmm. There's, there was still no reason for them to do that. Mm-hmm. There's still no reason at 17 for me and my cousin to be manhandled and, and, and snatched out the car and thrown on the police car because of us trying to find where his older sister is and, and, and being upset and hostile, mm. there was still no reason for them no. to do that, no but reason. they did it. So the, those are the things that, and, 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 and let me be clear that me fearing at the time, the police and my distrust for the police, it wasn't a racist issue because there was blacks and Hispanics that were doing the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. So this wasn't that about was race. So no, it's not about police. It's not about uh, uh, race as it is how they treat African-Americans that come from these communities. And I often believe this is my theory. A lot of them have been desensitized mm. because you're you're on the beat as a police officer all the time mm-hmm. you're dealing with all different kind of just wild people so then subconsciously you start thinking all people are like this mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i think that police officers should be on the beat for like a year and then another year just be in the office doing paperwork mm-hmm. to kind of just normalize you again and realize this isn't every black and hispanic person this isn't every white person mm-hmm. these are just people that are doing these things for whatever reason but this isn't everybody you don't have to treat everybody like this but when you're trying to you know crack down on crime when you're trying to make communities safe and there's no relationship there exactly If there's no relationship there, how do you expect a person to respond? You know, at one point when I was little, we had police officers that used to hand out baseball cards. I remember that. When the Rockies first came out, they used to they used to come and this is when they built the police um, station in Montbello. They used to come and hand out baseball cards. What happened to that? Right. So it now has become a power, a place of power so that over under thing and the whole authoritarianism and that you don't question me and i think Correct. everybody is afraid of the police i'm afraid of the police um but i can understand why you have a more inherent gut-wrenching fear yeah yeah i mean now you know being a lot older i don't carry those same fears it tends to creep up every now and then when i think of police is behind me but this is a i'm now a full-fledged adult i'm 37 years old mm-hmm. right so the days of fixing up my car and playing loud music and looking a certain way them days are over mm-hmm. so to them i probably don't look as threatening to them no more to to even have suspicion to pull over you know yeah yeah so and those are the things that we have to worry about as African-Americans, too, are just our appearance. Mm-hmm. Your appearance is, quote, air quotes, threatening. To, threatening. Is it threatening to just people in general, or would you say the law enforcement community? Or what do you, who would, do you think it's threatening I say, to? I would say both. 
to yeah. anybody that doesn't have a consciousness of understanding African-American culture. Mm -hmm. And so for me, and I'm just speaking for myself, that's why after a while I stopped caring what people thought because I'm like, you're going to fear me no matter if I have a clean cut look or I have dread, the dreadlocks to my shoulders. Mm -hmm. Some of you are still going to fear me no matter what I do or what I say. So I might as well just be an individual. Mm -hmm. Do you get tired because of trying? You get tired of trying to integrate, trying to assimilate, yeah. trying to sound like this, wear this, because to some, it, it, it doesn't matter. I mean, uh, years ago, Henry Louis Gates, um, the person on PBS that mm -hmm. does all these documentaries, uh, author, you know, mm -hmm. different things like that, he forgot his key and ended up creeping in his window to get in his own house. And the cops were called on him because they thought an older man, 50 plus years old, was in there breaking in a, in a house. That's so sad. This is Henry Louis Gates. Mm -hmm. No and one's safe. Yeah. Right. He's yeah. 50 plus years old. And, and somebody's like, oh, he's breaking he's breaking in somebody's house and it was his own house. He just mm. locked himself out and forgot the key. So that, that's what I'm saying when, when we're talking about this, this question of the police and we're talking about this question of uh, identity and, and, and being an individual, these are the many things as African-Americans we face. And these are some of the things that I have faced. You have completely expanded my scope of understanding in, in how you've expressed your opinion today, Chalmer. Thank you for your eloquence and in your verbiage and giving me visual pictures and the vulnerability of sharing exactly how you feel about these things. I think- And be, and be clear, this isn't an opinion. This is my reality. Your reality. Yes, yes. And we all need to hear these things. It's important that everybody hears it, respects it, and tries to understand. Well, you've already given us so much wisdom, but would you have one final morsel, uh, one thing that you would like to say to a white person or people in general to help them better understand you or systemic racism or inequality or or just plain what it's like being an african-american what would it be you know i was pondering on this question um right before our interview started and i'm gonna give an analogy and i hope this can make it clear as possible take two pair of glasses right mm -hmm. take two pair of eyeglasses step on one and don't step on the other one. When you step on one, then put them, put them on your eyes. Mm -hmm. This is how non-people of color oftentimes, not all the time, oftentimes see systemic racism inequality through a broken pair of lenses. Mm -hmm. So you see, you yes. see it, but you don't see everything in its clarity. Mm -hmm. So how can you speak to it? Mm. How can you get involved in it when you're already seeing it from a distorted lens? You know something's there or you might not know something's there, you know, and it's like having a broken pair of glasses on. But for mm. African-Americans, we have the glasses that are not broke. We see it as clear as day from the, the, the grandioso scales of it to the subtle nuances of mm -hmm. it. And some black people that might hear this might not like this. Sure, do we throw the race card out there a lot? Yes, we do. But for some, we have legitimate reasons why. Because mm -hmm. throwing the race card out there just shows you the oppression that we've been dealing with forever. Well, and it's on us to listen to the people who have the clarity. It's the, the, that visual is just so genius because... I mean, that's how I'm going to see it from this day forward. We need to let the people with the clear vision lead the way and we need to listen to them and we need to follow their instructions and be sensitive to give them the lead. 
we will follow, we will educate ourselves, those of us with the broken glasses, and hope that eventually we find a good optometrist, right? Who <laughs> can get us good, better right. glasses. And, and, the, and the good optometrist really is, in my opinion, is not so much of being sensitive and being aware. That's just the foundation. But really opening up the door of privilege, access, and resources. Mm-hmm. If, that's, if that's one thing you want to do, to help or to change, open up those doors that have been open for you since the beginning. Mm-hmm. It's not enough to be aware. It's not enough to be empathetic. Those are foundational things. At this point in 2021, we don't want you to feel sorry for us. Mm-hmm. We just want, okay, when we're at the dinner table, we want to be at the dinner table. Matter of fact, sitting right next to you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. We want to have those conversations of how we can advance the, you know, through resources, through access, through privilege that have been closed to us for whatever reason. That's why people are still, even in 2021, making a big deal about Kamala Harris because yes. she's the first one. Yes. Yes. Because now she has access to all that privilege and power, right? Right. But, but, but it's, it's, look how long it's taken. Uh-huh. It 2021. Been, right. Yeah. My, my African-American sisters are even on a lower totem pole than African-American males. Mm-hmm. Sadly. I'm Sad. going to quote you on this, Chalmer. This is going to live in infamy. It's not enough to be aware or empathetic. That should be the baseline. That is... Man, how many times have I said this already throughout the interview? That's genius. <laughs> I just, <laughs> man, you have got, you have got a voice that needs to be heard. And I'm so lucky that I've gotten to the chance to sit here with you today and, and glean from your experience, your reality. And uh, man, I'm lucky. So I know you're using this voice um, in a beautiful way. Let's tell the audience uh, what you are currently working on. Well, I'm working on a couple of things, but um, I have a podcast. It's called Fatherhood Fridays, and it's a podcast de- dedicated to you know fathers, stepfathers, and father figures alike, so that we can be the best fathers that we're called to be. You know, oftentimes is being a dad, and I'm finding that you know being a dad, whether you're white, black. Hispanic, Asian, whatever, there's oftentimes a negative connotation with it. Mm-hmm. And this platform that I've created allows us to tell our story, how we feel as men, mm-hmm. because a lot of times, you know, women, sometimes women could say, you don't talk enough, you don't express enough, or you, you're, you're uh, I'm allowing people to be on my podcast from all walks of life to tell their story. I'm not a father expert. I, I'm, you know, I might not have the credentials, but I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just walking along with you as as another father myself. Well, I'd like to uh, get to our closing questions because I have taken so much of your time already. Um, but we're just about done. Um, I think maybe we could probably skip. Well, you tell me. Do you want to skip? What is your tip to make the world a better place? Or do you have one that's different from what you just spoke to? I would say that what can make the world a better place is love. Yeah. Love covers a multitude of bad things. It it's sure does. It's easier to love than to hate because we were wired to love. And that's the one thing as humans mm-hmm. we need is love. The reason I believe our country is so divided is because we're not on the same agenda. Mm-hmm. And that's, and that's loving each other as ourselves. Yes. Very good words. What are you the most thankful for today? This opportunity. Oh, good. This, this, this opportunity to express myself about these topics that that are are passionate to me. I mean, a lot of times I'm in the room listening to other people or I have to raise my hand to 
it, you know, give my my thought process behind a question that is open to the floor, but to have a whole hour where I can talk about it from my perspective, you know, I'm I'm just I'm just honored by it. That's fantastic. What is your favorite quote? I recently uh, picked up a quote I saw on Facebook from somebody I think I know. Her name is Roberta, and I don't think she'll ever hear this uh, podcast, but I'm going to say it. It says, when writing the story of your life, don't let anyone else hold the pen. Wow. I'm letting that sink in right now. And writing the story of your life, don't let anyone else hold the pen. So pretty much being true to who you are. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody knows your story better than you. Mm-hmm. Nobody can tell your story better than you. Nobody can take away or add to your story better than you because you are to like we were talking about earlier, an individual. Mm-hmm. That's a perfect ending. Thank you so much, Chalmer. I appreciate your time more than you know. <laughs> it's been such a joy today. Thank you. No problem. No problem. Thank you for, for letting me be a part of your show. Chalmers speaks to racism's cousin, classism, very eloquently. I appreciate his description of racism not being as direct when you grow up in an area that is economically depressed and you live among the marginalized. It's just not something you see. I'd never thought of that, actually. But classism is extremely pervasive, as well as a slowly boiling frustration hidden just below the surface. Passive enough not to be talked about very often, but noticed and felt by all. It fascinated me how Chalmer explained his education on racism, or lack thereof, in his childhood home. It seemed that his parents were happy to let movies and TV shows explain the experience of racism in the lives of African Americans without actually calling it by name. He saw numerous positive images on TV of black representation during the late 80s and 90s, and that's a good thing. But he also witnessed how certain movies fueled his dad's anger from images on the screen and how that reminded him of things he endured growing up but still couldn't actually verbalize. So he learned by watching, as most children do, positive as well as negative representations on screen along with watching his dad's responses to these images. That type of learning leaves an indelible impression on a child. I just love how sensitive Chalmer is to his children and understanding of their personalities to know what and how much they can bear and when. It was touching to hear of his son's deep care for mankind, that he was moved to tears by the story of Martin Luther King Jr. I was also intrigued by his admission that he and his wife had such ambivalent attitudes about Dr. King when they were younger. It just goes to show how we're all wired so differently, and what affects one of us deeply might have no impact on another. There are a multitude of ways to learn the same lesson. Chalmers' explanation about code switching actually shocked me. I might show my ignorance, but I had never realized the depths and lengths that African Americans have had to go through in order to be accepted with something as simple as seemingly and seemingly unimportant and inconsequential as speech. Code switching is a survival skill that I did not realize. This was news to me and helped broaden my compassion to another area that I was uneducated about. I had no idea that the need to code switch was a form of racism. I had no idea it was encouraging a loss of cultural identity. This was a sad eye-opener for me. I was also struck speechless when Chalmers said, It's not so much being sensitive and being aware. That's just the foundation. But really opening up the door of privilege, access, and resources. Man, I needed that admonition. I see it as a call to action. We can best help by opening up the doors for the marginalized that have been open to us since the beginning. And why not? 
I'm a huge fan of visual imagery and Chalmers' analogy of broken versus clear glasses to help in describing racism was exactly what I needed to link certain concepts together. White people do see racism through the lens of a broken pair of glasses. We lack clarity because we lack experience. Whereas African Americans have the benefit of clarity through their clear lenses, plus 400 years or more of oppressive experiences to draw from. It only makes sense to let those with clear vision lead the way. If you also want to coexist with those around you who are different for one reason or another and want to live a life of inclusivity, may you consider seeing yourself as one part of many in the great salad bowl of life, as Chalmer has. Thank you for listening to Gramercy. Remember, there is no them, just us. See you down the road.